Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Thy Strong Word. I'm Pastor A.J. Espinosa. We're reading the entire Bible together, book by book, chapter by chapter. Here we are in Joshua chapter 11. The ESV has some helpful headings here. Last time we were looking at Joshua chapter 10, and the heading at the last section said, Conquest of Southern Canaan. And this time we have Conquest in Northern Canaan. So we have lots of place names, and we're going to try to keep them straight. But big idea here is that the other kind of half of the land basically is under attack here. And so here it is on the move. It kind of reads like a war epic here, but um, is it really just a story of war? You know, one of these tales of warriors that they might tell, or um, is there more going on here? There are a couple indeed big uh, theological statements, including the at the very end of the chapter, and to spend some time on, it says, and the land had rest from war. So there are some um, ideas that I think are also very relevant to us here. So looking forward to that. And joining us today, uh, this is great. Um, as a treat, we have returning for us, we've got the Reverend Dr. Alfonso O. Espinosa, um, a.k.a. Dad. He's the pastor of St. Paul's Lutheran Church, the senior pastor there in Irvine, California. Um, also the author of a few books, but the most recent one being Faith That Sees Through the Culture. Welcome. Good to have you back. Great to be here, Pastor AJ. Thanks for having me, son. <laughs> yeah, you bet. It's uh, it's always a treat. Uh, thank you for taking a little bit of time out. I know that you're you're eager to get underway, um, making a big dent into your second book. Um, so I appreciate you taking a little bit of time uh, today to to do this. Um, really, really briefly, um, do you want to just throw out a little bit for all the listeners uh, what you're working on for this uh, second book? this uh, kind of sequel to the first one I just mentioned? The first book um, gave confidence to the Christian to live in the culture. The second book then anticipates the Christian with increased confidence coming to the unbeliever and being in a position to effectively engage. Uh, we're going to be looking at the engagement triangle to carefully consider the word that we handle or pointing to Jesus the people involved, uh, the Christian and the unbeliever, and the place, appreciating the culture, which uh, is the environment that needs to be carefully considered as we witness a Christ. The goal here is to um, help Christians uh, not be intimidated by the wonderful call of the Lord for us to be his light and to share the saving gospel. Um, so far, the book has been uh, just a lot of fun to write, and I do appreciate your prayers that it would be something that glorifies God and helps his people. Certainly. And, you know, it's interesting, as you were speaking, I was just thinking there's a kind of interesting parallel, I think, um, if, if we're willing to be a little bit metaphorical here, um, between what you were just describing, your, your the, the first uh, two books here, the, the first one, Faith That Sees Through the Culture, and then this one this one would be um, Faith That Engages the Culture, right? That's correct. Uh, so yeah, I'm thinking, right. uh, something that maybe the analogy, an, an analogy anyway, could be that, you know, like in the situation in Joshua, you know, like the first step is they have to have the right perspective on this, right? Like they need to, we, mm -hmm. we remember, of course, in Numbers, when Joshua was sent out as one of the spies, 
he and Caleb had a different perspective. They saw things differently, right? Everyone else was like, ah, the Anakim, right? Uh, the, the, you know, the giants, right? And we're going to actually, those guys show up again at the end of the chapter, right? Um, but the thing is, uh, even though they have this perspective of, oh, there's no way, right? Joshua and Caleb have a different kind of perspective. They have a faith that sees through the appearances of their situation. Um, and then what follows then in this book in Joshua, um, we have this description of how they they employ a very particular strategy. There's a particular way of doing things. And this has been kind of all the drama about whether they should be making an alliance with Gibeon or not, and what's going on with the kings in the south and how they attack these cities. They, there has to be a particular way that you do this because there are spiritual ramifications. So, um, you know, there's kind of there's kind of that parallel, I think. It's like, you know, before you can kind of carry out the marching orders yet to have the right perspective. And so you see that I think kind of both in our situation, of course, it's not, it's not, a, you know, like we were saying a couple of chapters ago, it's not, it's not jihad. It's, you know, it's not like uh, devoting things to destruction. Um, but it is, uh, and actually in that sense, you know, claiming things for the Lord Jesus. And all the while the believer has confidence because God has made promises to his people. So those who see are those who hold to the promises of his word and through that word are empowered to carry out their call. Amen. So, yeah, and we see that actually just in uh, this opening section here, uh, that faith and confidence, especially in verse six, uh, Yahweh speaking to Joshua. Let's go ahead and turn uh, to reading and getting into this chapter here. As we do, would you say a prayer for us and for everyone listening along today? Yeah, this is uh, the prayer coming out of the third Sunday after the Epiphany. Let us pray. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Almighty and everlasting God, mercifully look upon our infirmities and stretch forth the hand of your majesty to heal and defend us. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. 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 All right, let's go ahead and read uh, just the first five verses to kind of get, uh, take stock of the situation mm -hmm. here. A bunch of names, and I'm going to be inconsistent with the way that I pronounce them because uh, sometimes I just pronounce things kind of closer to how it is in Hebrew, and sometimes, especially with like kind of the well-known names um, or the relatively well-known names, I'll go ahead and pronounce them according to like English um, convention. But, you know, it's like I always say, it's... Neither one of these ways is actually like the way it was originally pronounced, so not worth the trouble to trifle over such things. So first five verses here of Joshua chapter 11 in the English Standard Version. When Jabin, king of Hazor, heard of this, he sent to Jobab, the king of Madon, and to the king of Shimron, and to the king of Akshaph, and to the kings who were in the northern hill country and in the Arabah south of Kinneroth and in the lowland and in Nephoth-dor on the west, to the Canaanites in the east and west, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, and the Jebusites in the hill country, and the Hivites under Hermon in the land of Mizpah. And they came out with all their troops, a great horde in number like the sand that is on the seashore, with very many horses and chariots. And all these kings joined their forces and came and encamped together at the waters of Merom to fight against Israel." 
Okay, so <laughs> a lot of place names. Um, you know, it really helps to be like looking at a map or something when I think when you read this. Uh, but yeah, so what's what's going on here? It seems like this is a deliberate description of just how how badly the odds are stacked against them, it seems. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, once the intelligence about what happened down south reaches the King of Hazor, he um, is wise to recruit as much help as possible. And it's a, it's a wide swath of assistance through many, many kings. And when you read about this alliance uh, here, it's incredibly impressive. Um, they are high in number, but not only that, and uh, they are sophisticated in military might with their chariots and horses. So they're going to do something about Israel and uh, once and for all uh, protect themselves as the Canaanites. It sounds impressive, and uh, it's set up so Israel is now facing uh, a very serious test uh, before they can completely conquer the land. So, so it makes sense. By the as way, you were saying. yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, um, th th there is a um, a side note here. As I was re researching this, um, it, it is astounding to take into consideration how the scriptures align with uh, a host of historic historic texts, non biblical hmm. historic texts. Um, including the Mari text, the Amarna text, the itinerary of the Egyptian pharaoh Thutmose III, and finally uh, also including um, Assyrian king Tiglis Pileser's notes. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, this is incredible. So history attests to this fantastic uh, encounter, and it seems as though maybe, uh, as you're reading it, uh, Israel might not on top this time but we know what's going to happen right yeah yeah no that is that is um that's a good point that the it is is a logical um reaction as, as to what happens here right you know when when um when jabin hears of everything that went down in the south he's like okay we need to do something and we need to do it differently because um you know they they were wiped out and so um, logical, and then what you hear, particularly, and this is a big deal in in verse four. This is this is not the way that things were described in verse ten, right? Like, or chapter ten. In, in chapter ten, you know, it is a description of kind of going from um, city to city, and there's a description of you know that there's, I mean, like an enemy force that has to be you know contended with. But here in chapter eleven, it says here they came out with all their troops, a great horde in number like the sand that is on the seashore with very many horses and chariots. So like, it, it seems to be the point that they come out with even more troops than the Canaanites in the South. Um, and they come out better equipped horses and chariots this time. Right. And so, I mean, that's, that's like you were saying, this is the part that raises some doubt um, as you're just as a listener hearing the story. Cause you're like, um, gosh, do, do the Israelites have horses and chariots? I don't think so. So, I mean, how are they supposed to, how are they supposed to do this? Exactly. It's set up, uh, it, it's a deliberately um, presented set up as a seeming, seemingly impossible situation. Um, and of course, this is teaching uh, an invaluable lesson. There's no way that Israel is going to get this done on their own. Um, if, if the Lord doesn't, doesn't lead them and help them and make this happen, it ain't happening. Um, 
practical lesson just comes uh, popping out of these uh, pages here because how often we begin to uh, rejoice in, in the fact that the Lord has converted us, he's brought us to his kingdom, he's incorporated us into his church, we've landed, we're here, maybe we've already experienced some spiritual victories, if you will, in our sanctification walk, and just about the time we think that, hey, we've got this Christian life figured out, here come even more formidable challenges and, and confrontations. And <clears throat> this, this uh, account here in Joshua is teaching us that we are always to expect this to happen. And there will be times contrary to what we might think as Christians, just when we think things ought to be getting better as we grow in our faith, that oftentimes they don't. <laughs> and, and they can seem to get worse. But that's okay because the Lord is with us. Yeah, right. And, um, yeah, you know, I, I appreciate you making the connection to, to us as well, that um, it, it's not as if the, the the path of faith is one where just uh, I don't know, the further along you go, it seems like the, the easier and brighter everything is, right? Um, it's some, sometimes you, you have to um, go go deeper into the, the darkness and the thick of it um, as you're on the way, um, you know, on, on the path that the Lord would lead. So, right, we certainly can relate to that, even if we can't relate necessarily to the uh, military war aspects of this. Um, one, one last question, because we should go ahead and move on before and, and get the like maybe about to the halfway point here before our break. But uh, just another question, kind of just the nuts and bolts in the local context here. So, you know, we have this long list of of people, right? Um, you know, the Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, all this, right? Um, it, it seems like the last time that you had a lot of these guys listed was um, back in, where was it here? I think it was at the beginning of chapter nine um, when, when we were, we were saying, you know, okay, it, yeah, it says like back in chapter nine, like, okay, they're all going to go and, you know, enter into this grand alliance. But <clears throat> at that time, it didn't seem like it was maybe necessarily like a fighting alliance, um, like an offensive one. It was more of a defensive one because as we had been seeing all along here, uh, Joshua had, had very deliberately um, petitioned God that there would not be one big alliance in, in the Holy Land um, against them, um, that they wouldn't be surrounded and cut off on all sides. So I feel like, there, is, there, is there maybe like a tension between this? On the one hand that, you know, there they are avoiding the the word against about their defeat at I getting out, lest there be some kind of big pincer move going on. Um, so on the one hand, like avoiding a grand alliance and God seemingly protecting them and helping them avoid that. And then also, on the other hand, as you were just saying, uh, yet there is a, a big alliance here um, to make this other point to trust in God. So, I mean, I don't know if the, how this is really actually a very direct question, but I mean, there, there's, a, there's a tension here, it seems. Um, do, you, do you think that there's a tension? Um, if so, like what, what's, the, what's the takeaway from that? I, I think there's a. I, I think that's a fantastic observation uh, that you've just made, and and I think there is a tension, and I think it's quite deliberate, and I also think it's quite consistent throughout the scriptures and in the lives of God's people. Um, when when you consider this particular alliance, uh, the, the the swath uh, geographically is is phenomenal. I, I mean, this alliance includes all of the tribes 
among the Canaanites and kingdoms from Mount Hermon way up north, all the way down south and to the west to Mount Carmel. This is like a super mighty group here. And, you know, you just come out of this situation that you just aptly described where it seems as though, okay, the Lord is going to, you know, bless us with this answered prayer at one point um, back when they entered into the central part of, of Canaan. Um, but as time goes on, the Lord's going to say, you know what? I'm, I'm going to increase your faith. I'm going to show you more. There, our, our faith puts us in a position to experience more than what we can even imagine. And the Lord maintains this trajectory of saying, you know what? I'm not satisfied with what you've had. I want you to have more. I want you to see more. I want you to experience more. And so, yes, I, there is a tension. And, and the Lord is being faithful. He answers the prayers at the time. He knows how much we can take at that time. But he leads us to maturity, and he leads us to encounter even more to, to, to uh, fortify our faith. Thank you. I, I appreciate the coherence of your answer better than the coherence of the question. I, I, I think that I, I like that the way you put it, that it's God giving us more and God initially answering our prayers with, okay, yes, I'll spare you of this. But then later saying, but you know what, now it's time to give you a no um, and actually grow your faith. So it, it does seem like, you know, way back in chapter seven, when they're embarrassed at the defeat of I and Joshua's pr- playing or praying, please don't, don't let the word of this get out. And then they make a pincer move in a big alliance, right? Initially, it seems to be like, okay, I, I will, I will help you. You will not be embarrassed. There will not be a grand alliance against you. And, and they proceed, right? Um, and, and they go through and they, they're in central Canaan and they go down to the south, right? But, but now in this situation, you know, here comes actually um, the worst fear realized. Here comes the big alliance. And even though it's not everybody, it's not all the people in the south, right? Uh, it, it is just the northern um, area. It, it's, it's honestly still too big of an alliance for them to handle just in terms of um, just the, the feet on the boots on the ground, so to speak. So, you know, yeah, I, I, th- I like the way you're putting it that, you know, God initially, you know, maybe um, uh, as a, as a concession to our weakness and mercy, right. To us um, says, okay, yes, I'll spare you. But then as our faith grows in him, he says, no, I'm actually going to take you into this and you're going to see how I can even deal with this situation. And, and I feel like there's a parallel maybe with um, Moses in Egypt that, you know, initially I think that the Israelites are praying, you know, please, please let Pharaoh, let us go, you know, let, let him, let us go. Right. And finally, and finally, you know, after, you know, 10 plagues, he, he says, okay, go just get out. Right. But then what happens in the end? Well, ultimately he says, no, he changes his mind. He goes after him. Right. And so, you know, it seems like God initially is like, I'm going to work on Pharaoh to make him change his mind and grant you your prayer of being released. But in the end, I'm going to say, no, Pharaoh is against you. Here he comes with the army, but it's so that he can grow their faith at the Red Sea. So uh, it seems like this is a consistent pattern, actually. Yeah, it's so consistent that uh, from a pastoral perspective, Pastor uh, Johann Gerhard, when he wrote Meditations on Divine Mercy, he gets to the point in his maturity, and we see the phenomenal prayers he offers in this book, of actually praying that God would permit him trials. <laughs> I'm not quite there to pray that prayer confidently, but yeah, me neither. <laughs> Gerhard learned that this, this, right, this is what the Lord does. Uh, every time 
we start to get a little complacent. Yeah, I got answered that prayer. I'm in a good place. The Lord says, well, it's time for a new, a new tension, a new trial. But it's always, always, always for our good, always. And uh, right. he works more than we can, can ever imagine. Right. Well, yeah. And, and I, I mean, you even see the pattern, you know, in the ministry of our Lord Jesus that there were lots of these situations that he found himself in where he was kind of in hot water and um, whether it was, you know, the people who wanted to stone him at Nazareth and then he just passes through their midst or whatever exactly that means. Right. Um, Or there's these different situations where there's this crowd that's surrounding him or, you know, the, the Pharisees and the scribes and the authorities seem to be after him, but it seems like God is, is granting his prayer, our Lord's prayer um, that, that he be allowed to continue preaching and that he be spared um, because it seems like God is graciously getting him out of these jams again and again and again, right? He does not um, initially seem to befall the same fate as John the Baptist, right? Who's just, you know, captured and, and executed, beheaded, right? Uh, but then in the end, right, you know, it, it seems like, you know, our Lord has been praying to uh, avoid the confrontation as, as is indicated in the prayer at Gethsemane. But then finally, it's like the answer is finally no, because it you're better served with a no at this point. Like now we're going to do something even bigger than the ways that I've been answering your prayers with a yes. And of course that's the, the passion and resurrection of our Lord Jesus. Thank God that he said no. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. 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 No, I mean, that's, yeah, yeah. Right. Well, just, just think about that. That's, I mean, uh, yeah, yeah, and you don't even really necessarily consider it like that, but you know, it, it, he says no to our Lord at that point, and of course, the, the result is the the resurrection, which is um, even better than the the mortal life that he had taken on, and and then of course, yes, for us, it's so much better, you know, and, and we say, you know, thank God that he said no, um, you know, it's a it's a grateful and also um, contrite. Thank God that he said no, I think. But you know, that that, you know, here here he's gonna say no and he's gonna bring on this big, big force. But think about what it means when uh well, what what actually ends up happening, right? That uh, you know, I think in the end they're gonna say, Thank God he said no. Uh, but let's go ahead and read without getting further um into, into this thought. We can develop it after the break here. Uh, let's just read this next section, picking up at verse six really quick, and then we'll go into our break. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them, for tomorrow at this time I will give them over, all of them, slain to Israel. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. So Joshua and all his warriors came suddenly against them by the waters of Merom and fell upon them. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Israel, who struck them and chased them as far as great Sidon and the Mizraphoth Maim, and eastward as far as the valley of Mizpah. And they struck them until he left none remaining. And Joshua did to them, just as the Lord said to him. He hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots with fire. And Joshua turned back and at, at that time and captured Hazor and struck its king with the sword. For Hazor formerly was the head of all those kingdoms. And they struck with the sword all who were in it, devoting them to destruction. There was none left that breathed. 
he burned Hazor with fire. And all the cities of those kings and all their kings Joshua captured and struck them with the edge of the sword, devoting them to destruction, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. But none of the cities that stood on mounds did Israel burn, except Hazor alone, that Joshua burned. And all the spoil of these cities and the livestock the people of Israel took for their plunder, but every person they struck with the edge of the sword until they had destroyed them, and they did not leave any who breathed. Just as the Lord had commanded Moses his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua, and Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. All right, it's time for us to take our short break, but when we get back, we'll take up uh, what's going on in this description here we just read. Hang with us. Joshua chapter 11 on Thy Strong Word. Be right back. Ecclesiastes 10 verse 10 states, If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength. But wisdom helps one to succeed. Find this true wisdom in Christ on Sharper Iron every weekday morning at 8 a.m. here on Worldwide KFUO. Sharpen the iron of your faith together with two pastors as they take up the sword of the Spirit to proclaim the gifts of Christ crucified and risen for you. Hi, this is Pastor Mark Azil, the LCMS Director of Campus Ministry and the Chancellor of LCMSU, inviting you to join us right here on Wednesdays at 2 p.m. in the Student Union. If you can't make it, Student Union is always available as a podcast at kfuo.org. Learn more about LCMSU at lcmsu.org. And remember, college is tough. You need Jesus. We'll help. Wednesday afternoon at 2 on KFUO. The Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, on behalf of Concordia Plan Services, Lutheran Housing Support Corporation, Concordia University System, Lutheran Church Extension Fund, the LCMS Foundation, and Corporate Synod, daily reaches out to our members and partners, working together to support our local, global, and international ministries, church workers, and LCMS initiatives at large to carry the mission forward and to serve each other in love. Opportunities to serve, lcms.org careers. Welcome back, everybody, to Thy Strong Word. I'm Pastor A.J. Espinosa. We're looking at Joshua chapter 11 today. And as our guest, we've got the Reverend Dr. Alfonso O. Espinosa, Senior Pastor at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Irvine, California. We were just reading this section here, verses 6 through 15. Uh, you know, it's, it begins with, you know, the Lord saying to Joshua, do not be afraid of them. And, and then it describes that they, they actually do uh, follow that command. They, they put their fear aside and they're bold and courageous, you know, as, as the command was again and again um, in chapter one here. But then, yes, I mean, just a kind of very rapid fire description of uh, well, fire being the operative word here uh, of this campaign here. Uh, I want to invite all of our live listeners. If you've got any questions here about Joshua 11, you know, again, lots of uh, historical stuff, lots of geographical stuff. Any questions or comments, you can call 1-800-730-2727, or if you're in St. Louis, 314-821-0850, 314-821-0850. 
or you can send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. Also, we thank our underwriters at the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. Check them out at lhfmissions.org. So, right, we just read this second paragraph of the of the description of this campaign here. Um, I, I mean, it's it's mostly concluded by the time you actually get to uh, the end of verse fifteen. Uh, a few things stand out to me though, um, and, and we can talk about some of them um, in, in a minute. But the first thing, I guess, is the significance of, of verse six, right? That you know, here comes this this big um, campaign, this big alliance, right? The thing that they've been praying for to to have uh, be avoided, right? And then finally, here they come. It, they, the alliance has been formed. The chariots and the horses are there. Um, you know, maybe some echoes of Pharaoh at the banks of the Red Sea. And the Lord says, do not be afraid of them. And it just seems like this moment, like you were saying, where where their faith is grown here. Yeah, and um, I only have one longer quote, if I may. Um, sure. This is, of all people from origin, um, I say that because he's not exactly considered the mo- most orthodox uh, early source, but he, he really nailed it here. Uh, the more righteousness grows, the more it is attacked. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. In prior readings, the king of Jerusalem had assembled four other kings with him against Jesus, Joshua, and against the sons of Israel. But now no longer does someone assemble four or five. On the contrary, see how great a multitude one person assembles. You see how many swarms of opposing powers and of malicious demons may be stirred up against Joshua and the Israelite army before the coming of our Lord and Savior. All those demons, undisturbed and secure, were occupying human spirits and ruled in their minds and bodies. But when grace appeared in the world, the mercy of God our Savior instructs us to live piously and purely in this world, separated from every contagion of sin, so that each soul may receive its liberty and the image of God in which it was created from the beginning. Because of this, fights and battles spring forth from their iniquitous old possessors. If the first ones, if the first ones are overthrown, far more rise up afterwards, and they unite into one and conspire in evil almost remote from the good, always remote from the good. And if they are conquered for a second time, again a third time, other more wicked powers will rise up. So perhaps the more the people of God are increased and the more they thrive and are multiplied, there are that many more who conspire to assault, unquote. And at this point, man, the assault has gotten really bad. And just when we would start to freak out and panic and go, all is lost, what happened to God? He says, don't be afraid. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Yeah. Th- thank you. That was, that was a really insightful quote. Um, and, and, uh, I mean, I appreciate it because he's, uh, I mean, he's, he's doing so much there in, in that quote, but uh, I mean, yes. Yeah, so we, we have this idea that uh, I, I like it as, as righteousness grows, right. It's attacked all the more. So like we've been saying, you know, he, so far God's been sparing them a really like big united front kind of confrontation with the Canaanites, um, but now, like as, as they grow in their faith and their confidence, right? You know that they, they, I mean, they grew in repentance, right? When they when they stoned Achan, right, and his and his family, because you know they were saying, look, you know, we're 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 not going to 
tolerate this, you know, uh, we're not, we're not going to like allow and endorse this sin, right? We're, we're going to be faithful. When God says you don't take any of the plunder, we're not going to take it, no matter how beautiful or expensive or valuable it is, right? So, I mean, they're, they're, they're walking the path of faith. They're walking the path of repentance, and, and they are growing in, in righteousness in that active sense, right? And, um, and then, yeah, but, but then they're, they're, here's, here's the moment. This is how God's going to grow their faith more by, by, by this big answer of no, uh, and then do not be afraid. And I like what he said. This is something that I don't think we've maybe talked about really um, so far in these first 11 chapters of Joshua, that there's a spiritual dimension, right? And, and there's this phrase that exists in the, our piety, uh, spiritual warfare, that it's not just that they're, they're fighting uh, people here, but they're, they're fighting the demonic forces, the spiritual powers of darkness that are behind them. And as we saw in a very um, you know, big way in the book of Daniel, where this was just highlighted that behind the the forces and powers of this world there are you know angels and demons right and the description that you have in Daniel is that you know Michael is the one who seems to be the spiritual force that kind of rules behind the scenes in um, in Israel and and there but there are these you know these other demonic forces that you know one's referenced as the the prince of Persia right and so you know origin makes this really interesting point that up until the coming of our Lord Jesus, these these demons, um, they, they kind of had a little bit of a free reign going on, and it's not until the coming of the Lord Jesus that Satan is bound and the demons are um, just greatly restricted uh, by the authority of Jesus, which exists in the church. So, I mean, we haven't really talked about that, but that, that seems like Origins connecting the difference between this sort of campaign of violence in, in BC times yeah. Versus the church now, yeah. um, which is, which is not to be wielding the sword in violence like this, and and why the That's difference? Right. Well, Satan hadn't been bound yet, but but now he is. Yeah, what you just said is gigantic, and someone should write a book about it uh, because it sets us up to properly and even more fully answer the the complaints against uh, devoting to destruction. We, we, you and I have talked about this before on the show, but. Don't think we brought in this element as as you have just now. When human reason steps back and evaluates this, it, it's just offended left and right. And we talked about why it's so important to have a proper understanding that the God of love protects his people. And he knows that there are people set in darkness and um, unrepentance to only destroy his people. But the bigger picture is what you touched on. What human reason does not say as it as it judges this in, in the Old Testament, what human reason does not see is it does not see what's happening in the background in the spiritual realm. This is so dark, this is so horrifically evil that what is happening in the hearts of the Canaanites is totally and completely set against God totally and completely more than willing to devour the people who are the line that would lead to the savior of the world. There is indeed a spiritual battle here and human reason doesn't get it because we don't see it. But with eyes of faith, we see it because we trust the word which reveals it. Right. Yeah. And I like the way you're putting it that, you know, this is, this is not, 
the perspective that you get from human reason. Like this is the, the, the kind of popular secular opinion doesn't look at it this way, right? Because the popular secular opinion is sort of like, well, see, back then in these times, humanity, yeah, we were pretty barbaric. You know, we were unenlightened, right? This was before the Enlightenment, right? Um, you know, both sides, though, you know, Joshua and the Israelites, you know, they had this, they had the kind of same kind of superstitious, like nationalistic warrior god idea that all the rest of the Canaanites did. And they, they were all in the wrong, you know, they all turned to violence. And now we're more, we're more enlightened, we're more civilized. And so in, in that view, the, the the thought is that humanity humanity has improved like we're we're somehow like bettering ourselves but i mean the perspective that you've just outlined for us and the perspective that's um that's being shared there by by origin is that well no human nature is human nature <laughs> i mean human the same human nature that's in us is the human nature that was in them humanity in and of itself is no better it is the same the the difference right is the spiritual forces that are going on um, then and now, right? So, yeah, you can say that things have improved, but it's not because of the human elements improving. Um, it's because of the Lord Jesus improving improving the spiritual situation. So, I mean, just, just very interesting that, you know, kind of either way, both sides would agree that there has been an improvement, but they would, they would attribute and maybe locate the improvement in very different places. Yeah, thanks for that. Um, I, I love what you said. And and isn't it ironic that right about the time that uh, humanity considers itself improved, that we're actually taking two steps back and uh, we put ourselves in a position of, of, of even uh, more compromise towards the sacred faith and 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 losing that which is truly needed for peace and um, and protection. Um, but God is so serious about teaching this lesson on you know the first book uh, that I wrote is on the theme of Second Corinthians five seven. We walk by faith and not by sight. Uh, the Lord wanted to make sure that they got it. You know I'm I'm going to. You, you have nothing to fear. Because I will give over all of them. <laughs> and, and just to make sure you get it, I'm instructing you to hamstring their horses and burn their chariots because you will not be tempted to go along with the world's might. You won't be yeah. tempted to take their, their mechanisms for, for, for strength. And you will continue to be at the seeming disadvantage with less sophisticated weaponry and resources. And you will continue to trust me instead that's an excellent point there in the the description right i mean our you know it says there that yahweh the lord god of hosts right he's the one who's giving them these instructions and right everything he's saying is for the purpose of um their blessing and, and the growing of their faith like do not be afraid and, and you're not and like you said you're, you're not gonna be tempted to rely on militaristic strength here right i mean isn't it interesting that it seemingly takes so much time for God to allow them to have a king, right? He's like, I don't want you to go that way. I don't want you thinking that it's all about your king and the king's glory and the king's army. And I don't, I don't want you guys trusting in those things, right? And so it's only like God seems to, you know, reluctantly give them a king after, you know, centuries, it seems. So, right, there, there is there is that. Um, one of the other elements that um, 
and I want to come back, maybe if there's time at the end, I want to circle back to a, a point that kind of raised its head a little minute ago. But another point in the, dis- in the description here, the instructions, in verse 13, so another partic- particular thing, um, you know, God says you're going to burn the chariots and the horses, uh, but also there's this comment, verse 13, but none of the cities that stood on mounds did Israel burn except Hazor alone that Joshua burned. So what's going on there? I mean, what, what is it? First of all, what does it even mean? Um, a city that, that stands on a mound. Um, and then also, so what, what's the significance that he wouldn't burn those ones in particular? Well, I get to cheat because the, the Lutheran study Bible has a, a nice note here. Cities on <laughs> mounds were common because of their more defensible position. Yeah. Uh, apparently the Israelites took possession of those cities that were not burned. And and so, yeah, there, there, there's certainly uh, what, what I like about this and, and why I think it's distinctive from the point about uh, hamstringing the horses and burning the chariots is that those things um, are, are used, are manipulated and used by men. The, the topography, the land, the, the creation, um, that's God's. And I'm going to let you have what I've set up. And you'll use this for your own protection as you come into the land. I, I really like that that idea, right? Like, you know, the, the kind of the artificial things, the artificial uh, offensive, you know, things that, that are just so easily uh, wielded. Um, in greed, right, to like enlarge one's possessions, right, and one's holdings, right? We, we talked about this, that in, the, in these ancient times, this was the thing, like every, you know, every year it was like, okay, how much can we grow our borders this year, right? Those things, God doesn't want them to have. But the natural things, which he has made, uh, which are good, these defensive positions, um, yes, you can go ahead and use those. I mean, that's a uh, that's a that's a powerful theme, and uh, it's of course one that you can get carried away with, you know, because you know, especially these days, it's um, we so many people fall into the like if it's natural, it's good uh, fallacy, right? And you can get mm-hmm. carried away with that. Mm-hmm. Um, but insofar as you know, God has indeed created certain things for certain purposes, and insofar as they fulfill those purposes, they are good. I mean, that just affirms the doctrine of creation. Amen. Well, let's go. <laughs> um, let's go ahead and read the last section here. Uh, we left it off at verse 15. So let's pick it up at 16. Um, and then we can discuss this last section. And like I said, if we have time, there's a, a question I want to come back to. So, okay, here's verse 16. So Joshua took all that land, the hill country and all the Negeb and all the land of Goshen and the lowland and the Arabah and the hill country of Israel and its lowland from Mount Halak, which rises towards Seir, as far as Baal God in the valley of Lebanon below Mount Hermon. And he captured all their kings and struck them and put them to death. Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. There was not a city that made peace with the people of Israel except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon. They took them all in battle, for it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle, in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy, but be destroyed, just as the Lord commanded Moses. And Joshua came at that time and cut off the Anakim from the hill country, from Hebron, from Debir, from Anab, and from all the hill country of Judah, and from all the hill country of Israel. Joshua devoted them to destruction with their cities. There was none of the Anakim left in the land of the people of Israel, only in Gaza, in Gath, and in 
Ashdod did some remain. So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses. And, Mo and Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments. And the land had rest from war. So uh, a number of points there, again, you kind of have like just a, a summary in the first several verses just of the scope, and you kind of get a little bit of an abbreviation there in verse 18, like, you know, just lest we think this was kind of like just one big battle or something, right? And then it was all over. Like, no, it, it did go on for, for some time, um, but, you know, the kind of long and the short of it, right, is what it says are at the end of verse 19, you know, they took them all in battle, you know, so, so they, they beat all these guys. But then verse 20 is the thing that the first one that jumps out at me. It was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle. Um, it, well, and then it's just, like, just to kind of like to press into it, right? In order that they should um, be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy, right? In order that sh they should receive no mercy. So, I mean, th this is this is uh, on two levels, right? One, like we were kind of earlier along the lines of origin saying that like, well, it was because of the the spiritual darkness. It was because of the the demons, right? It's because of them that this violence was inevitable and necessary. But um, this is saying, right, that it was God's doing, actually. So there's a little bit of a tension there in terms of the the cause. Um, and then, of course, uh, secondly, just okay. No, hang on. What? <laughs> like, why? Why would God even want to harden their hearts to allow them to be destroyed? So, uh, yeah, a couple of things here. What are your thoughts? Well, we, language is, is super-duper important, and, of course, you know that better than most people. But, uh, first of all, what, what does God want? So we, we know clearly what he desires. Second um, Peter 3.9, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Ezekiel 33.11, he has no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Uh, God doesn't contradict himself. So um, he wanted uh, salvation for these. At the same time, um, we read these words, and yeah, God is acting as, as, as is being described, but we can't see that and understand in a vacuum. These were hardened only after, uh, were hardened by God as a confirmation or a, okay, if that's the way you want it, of the hardening that they were already committing against God. Of course, this is, um, this is reflective of the scene in Exodus regarding Pharaoh. When God says right. in Exodus 4, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And in Exodus 9, but I will harden the heart of Pharaoh. Um, this happened, uh, in Pharaoh's case, only after the sixth plague. And prior to the sixth plague, Pharaoh hardened his own heart, and he continued to do so. And when you read uh, Romans, I know I'm bouncing around a little bit here, but we have this warning that when sin persists with in, in an unrepentant uh, context, God will hand a person over at a certain point. And this is a terrifying prospect, of course. It's, hor it's, it's, it's horrific. However, <laughs> that does not mean, it does not follow, it'd be a non sequitur to, to hold this other position that therefore God, and this is, of course, a double predestination disaster, that God predestined some from eternity to be condemned, to be reprobate. No. Christ died for all. Uh, 
John meant the world, not people throughout it, but everybody. At the same time, those who continue to reject Christ, who continue to hold to to unbelief and non-repentance, at a certain point, their hardening, God will confirm. If that's what you want, then so be it. Uh, When Lewis describes the the difference between those in heaven and hell at the end, when God beholds those who are in heaven, he hears the echoes of their constant prayer while they are on earth. Thy will be done. Thy will be done. When God beholds those who are in reprobation, he says to them, thy will be done. Thy will be done. Right. Yeah. Thank you for that perspective. I I really think that that, I mean, it does a a great job of just really bringing out the salient points. I I agree that, you know, there's, it's not really, um, as you were saying, like seemingly so contradictory that, you know, on on one level you say they're hardening their own hearts. On another level you say um, their God is hardening their hearts. Um, And and in fact, I might, I might um, say a little bit more on that, that, you know, I'm not sure that we necessarily need to read this as God kind of like struck them with like, I don't know, kind of like a mesmerizing, you know, bolt of mind control or something like that. Like, I'm not sure that you actually need to read this as, I mean, it's kind of opening a can of worms, but if we can try to avoid going down this rabbit hole, um, I don't think you necessarily need to read this as a supernatural occurrence. I, I think kind of as you're bringing up in Romans 1, there is this idea that that God is just working through the natural order he has created. And the natural consequence of these different kinds of sin and the ways that we debase ourselves, really, and we, the ways that we do ourselves injury in our own minds, right, in our own psyche, I mean, the natural consequence is we, we become stuck in those patterns, right? We become addicted. We become obsessed. I mean, like, this is the natural consequence of sin. And when there are natural consequences to sin, in other words, I mean, like the spiritual perspective of this, right? I mean, like, because there's, there's of course, a a non-spiritual perspective that says, like, well, this is just kind of materialism. This is just sort of like, you know, A to B to C to D, right? That's There's nothing spiritual about it. But the spiritual perspective is this, that, well, why do you go from A to B to C to D? Because God has created natural law. And when this natural law is doing things, that's not the universe doing it all by itself. That's God. I mean, that that's the universe obeying God's commands. So, I mean, it, it's a it's a both and that, you know, when we do these things to harden our hearts, right? And it's like a natural consequence of our sin. I mean, that is both um, our will, our fallen will at work, but also God's will through the natural law at work, the universe obeying the commands, uh, the laws that he has put in place. I think that's very well said. And uh, even while we may not, um, uh, you know, express the the path down the rabbit hole and uh, be too aggressive with the, the can of worms, I think people will kind of do that on their own. So what needs to be said, I think, is that uh, I, I think everything you said is completely true. And because it is completely true, because of natural law, and because we all have sin, it, it's in all of us, and it makes us blind, it makes us sick, and it makes us rebels who fight against God, who are enemies of God. I think the natural question that occurs uh, among many 
you know, Christians who are desirous of, of understanding these things is that why me? What, why, why was I saved? I was in that same natural law predicament. I too was stuck as much as the other guy. I was blind. How did it happen that I was saved? Now, we, we, can, we, we can compromise by giving in to these convenient answers uh, from Calvinism or Arminianism, etc., but of course we shouldn't do that. It is, we are left with somewhat of a mystery. I say somewhat, I think we need to be more bold. A mystery, uh, getting us back to the mystery of the gospel, the power of God that turns hearts. And I think precisely, and this is where it gets practical, and this is what I like to share with people, precisely when we realize, well, I don't deserve this salvation. I'm no better than this other guy who's stuck in the mire. If we really know that, and if we really believe that, where has God led us? He has led us to the conviction that I should be glad to share the saving gospel with that guy, to share the light of Christ with the people who don't know him. I think the Lord intentionally leaves us in this place so that we would go forth and live as his people as a result of this incredible mystery where we are the ones who are confessing Jesus. We should do something about that now and confess it to others. Amen. Right. There's, there's a deepened gratitude in the midst of the, the mystery. Absolutely. Well, that's a good uh, thought to wrap things up on. Uh, thank you so much again for taking out some time from, from writing to, to join us today. And I, and I think, I think we have you on for uh, Joshua 14, but then um, back, back to writing, uh, looking forward to looking at the second book here, uh, faith that engages the culture, Lord willing, uh, and uh, yeah, and then maybe on the other side of it, you can tell us a little bit about how the book is and uh, join us again. Thank you, Pastor AJ. Thanks for all that you do. Yep, you bet. Everybody, that was the Reverend Dr. Alfonso O. Espinosa, Senior Pastor of St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Irvine, California. That'll do it for uh, Chapter 11 here. And of course, the conclusion, uh, Joshua gives the land as an inheritance to Israel. The land had rest from war. Of course, that idea of rest, Jesus gives us an inheritance and Sabbath rest. He is our rest. Um, until next time, everybody, I'm Pastor AJ Espinosa, moving on to Joshua chapter 12. Peace. You've been listening to Thy Strong Word, produced by the Lutheran Church, Missouri Senate Office of National Mission in cooperation with Worldwide KFUO, the official broadcast ministry of the LCMS. Your support is vital for this program to continue. You can make a gift safe, secure, and easily online at kfuo.org. Thank you for listening and supporting Thy Strong Word.